Hello and welcome to Contemplations, and today we're going to be grappling with one of society's main problems, I think, and that is how, as a society that wants to deal with things, sort of keeping the principles of free speech intact, do we deal with bad ideas? And I suppose we're going to frame it in the question of how can we deal with bad ideas in a way in which is consistent with the principles of free speech? That's going to be the question formally outlined that we are addressing today. And I think that we've got plenty of ideas of how to do it. Some of our previous coverage of things in either symposium or contemplations or on the podcast kind of ties into it tangentially, but it doesn't all come together in a way that I think is coherent. And the idea of this um, is to answer this question. And this was actually originally suggested to me a very long time ago by someone called James. Um, I'm not going to give the second name because I didn't know whether he wanted to, but I always like to credit people who give me the ideas. And so if you're watching, I hope you're happy with what is about to come about. So I think it's worthwhile mentioning that there are lots of methods that I think don't work and aren't optimal. And one of them is using force to try and change people's ideas. And um, I'm pretty sure you'll probably agree with me on this. Well, yes, because... A lot of the times when uh, people are the victim of force, they have the exact opposite reaction mm -hmm. than the one intended. They, they want to sort of rebel against the person who uses force against them. So if you use force against people in order to change their minds, you're actually going to make them more um, averse to what you want them to think. Yeah, and I think that the way I would characterize it is using force creates resentment. Exactly. And so you don't make people buy into your ideas by forcing them down their throats. And I think that part of the reason there's so much backlash against modern woke ideology, to use that term, which is getting a bit stale, but you know what I mean by that, is that it's being forced down people's throats and they're being told, basically, at the figurative point of a barrel of a gun in Britain and a literal one in America, to obey these these principles or face you know loss of job loss of you know reputation yes. loss of life even in some cases yes and that isn't how you convince people and you only need to look at the model in western countries that have persecuted neo-nazis and uh, obviously i'm not a neo-nazi um in fact i'm you know a libertarian i'm against state power and pro-free markets, which are diametrically opposed to their ideology. Let me but, also say this, yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm it's a, it's against of the times, yeah. isn't it, that we have to even say that. Yeah. Obviously we know that, but you know, it's going out on the internet. But the point being here is I don't think you should censor them. I don't think it helps because what it does is it, it turns people into martyrs. They say, hey, we're being censored, we're being pushed underground because our ideas are correct, and theirs are not. Yes, and, and uh, not only that, but it uh, is contributing to a culture where, for instance, terms like fascism and Nazism are used in a very liberal way. Uh, liberal uh, with a small L, right? Yeah, with, with a very <laughs> small L. I mean, I mean, not in a political sense, but I mean that you, you can definitely think that it is a familiar thing to note when you see, for instance, young people who dislike what they hear from someone else and they say you're a fascist <laughs> or you're a nazi i've had leftists online call me a fascist and i'm just like hey 
Yeah. I'm about as free market and anti-government as it gets. Yeah. You know, fascism is the opposite ideology. Yes. How can you be that wrong? It'd be like, you know, it'd be like, I can't think of a comparable analogy that's absurd enough. Like saying to someone with a nut allergy, they eat too many peanuts. I don't know. Yeah. But <laughs> that's such a bad analogy. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? But I think that if if there are bad ideas, you know, disseminating those bad ideas does work. Like, I don't think exposing really crazy ideas that, you know, that the earth... I don't think exposing people to the notion that the earth is flat is necessarily going to be like, oh, wow, that must be true. Because most people think, okay, that's a bit of a, an absurd proposition. Yeah. And I, I'll need a bit more information before I buy into such a thing. I want to ask you a bit uh, what you mean by force. Now, that's a major question, but I, w- I want to draw a distinction between, for instance, a kind of um, inclination and a kind of coercion, because, for instance, you could say that a lot of marketing involves forcing people in a, in a small left sense, mm-hmm. especially when uh, people are younger. Mm. They may have uh, an idea about something and encounter a campaign that sort of emotionally blackmails them into thinking the opposite and by implication change their mind. So in that case, I think that this is a case where people can be forced to think the opposite, but it's uh, it's a bad thing. It's it's uh, it's wrong. Well, where, and it's... that isn't necessarily coercion to you know mm. be at gunpoint. Yeah, I think it's a multifaceted thing. On the one hand, you do get police knocking on people's doors and arresting people yes. in Britain for hate crimes. Yes, you know, like uh, there's a, a very clear case of someone altered the pride flag to look like a swastika. Uh, which was obviously a satire of the, the pride thing being used forcefully, and then someone kicked down their door and arrested them, as yeah. in the police did, not just someone. Yeah, so ironically, that's, we're that's proving you right. We're What's proving that? you correct. We're here to arrest you. Yeah. Yeah. It, the irony was clearly lost on them. But there are also other forms of coercion as well, in that, sure, that's the state using its monopoly on violence to coerce people to follow its ideology. That's pretty much undeniable. But there are also circumstances whereby just activists harass family members, message workplaces. I've had um, people message this workplace, which is funny because normally we share the email around and laugh at them. Um, But people have messaged in trying to get me fired for saying my opinions on the internet, which is not a sign of a, a healthy civil society is it that you say something i disagree with so i want to destroy your livelihood and uh remove your ability to provide for your family if i could afford to have one i regularly have these comments yes luckily i think it's not the majority no i i kind of take it on the chin because you kind of have to in this day and age and also people are taking them seriously less and less but these are more sort of coercive methods they're not necessarily using force but they're using and manipulation and sort of underhanded tactics. And this does happen, like um, you get someone who's got links to certain groups that people find distasteful and they might message the institutions that they belong to saying, are you sure you want to be associated with them? You get it with uh, sponsorship deals of public figures as well. And 
that to my mind is very clear evidence of coercion. And these sorts of things, you know, are somewhat difficult to prevent at the same time. In that if people want to send an email to someone trying to get someone fired, then there's not a lot that can be done about that. However, what can be done is employers could value the the sort of notion that their employees' private beliefs or you know their, their publicly espoused beliefs outside of their company work should yeah. be protected. And a, yeah. a valuing of that is very important for maintaining a civil society. Exactly. And so those sorts of things, I think, are essential. If you want society, you can't have people persecuting you for beliefs in the sort of informal sense. And so there's a sort of responsibility there for companies. I'm starting to sound a bit like Carl Schwab saying, the corporations, they have responsibilities. Yeah. That was terrible. I'm sorry. But One way of thinking about it, which is a bit counterintuitive, is the following. To say that if you want to be a member of a society, you have to be prepared to accept or tolerate some things you don't like. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there's, there is a question of where we draw the red line. And depending on how, let's say, authoritarian one is, one chooses uh, accordingly. But what is really interesting here is that sometimes people are so quick to say, I, I find something distasteful, therefore it shouldn't exist, mm -hmm. therefore I should use force against it. Very frequently we encounter all sorts of things we don't like. So yeah, it's I've... from a particular perspective, some people may think, in a very simple manner. I don't like this, let's use force against it. Mm -hmm. But the question then becomes, what would society be like if everyone thought this way? Well, it wouldn't uh, would exist. You, it wouldn't exist. But also, would you think that everyone else would find you tasteful? Of course not. Of course not. So this mindset seems very intuitive from the first person, you know, from our gut reaction. It's because of biological reasons. But at the end of the day, it leads into a blind conformism that is imposed from the top down. Mm -hmm. That is its logical conclusion. I find the Kardashians incredibly distasteful. Do I think someone should forcibly remove them? Uh, as tempting as it would be to say yes, yeah. I think that you know, arresting someone because they're annoying and stupid doesn't... <laughs> there, there would be a lot of arrests. We'd have a higher incarceration rate than the United States. By a significant margin, but uh, I think part of the reason that um, deplatforming and things like that have become part of modern politics is that disseminating information does work, and people recognise that. Like it, it's like if you call for deplatforming people, it's like an admission that you've got this incapability to debate the person whose ideas yeah. you're opposed to. And the whole notion of, oh, they're so despicable that they shouldn't even be aired. Well, no, that's exactly why they should be aired, right? You know, if, if, if someone in your family, you know, your close family, there was this, this massive disagreement in the family that you hadn't heard about, and there was this really terrible view that had been espoused, and everyone was annoyed with them, and your first inclination is, I don't want to know what they said, I just want to avoid them. Well, when it's put in that sort of individual, more closely knit familial context, 
it seems absurd, doesn't it? You would want to know what they said. You would want yeah. to know and discuss it with people to find out what people believe. And society is, is an extension of your own sort of community, your own family, your own network. It's sort yeah. of an outgrowth of it, isn't it? And so when you, uh, I quite like to actually apply individual sort of principles as in a sort of how I orient myself in my everyday life. I like to use those principles and extrapolate them to society because they do apply. And there are lots of things that um, cross-pollinate very nicely looking at a human society at a smaller or larger level. You know, that we're designed for small, sort of smaller societies, but the, the principles remain the same. And so posing these sorts of scenarios to people makes them think differently about it. Like, hang on a minute. So you, you would be fascinated to find out what that person said in the family. But when it comes to politics, when it's actually the state of the nation and not just your family unit, all of a sudden you take a different principle. Why? And I think that if you were to sit someone down and ask that question, they might struggle to answer and they might give a sort of platitude of, oh, well, you know, it's not as harmful if it's in a family, but it's more harmful than if it's societal wide, which I think is a big yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think about it? I mean, you have raised uh, several topics I want to touch upon because well, ahead, um, yeah. I, I really feel strongly about this issue. No, point number one is uh, something you said about why does it work nowadays? Why does deplatforming work and is so often used? And you said that it works and it does work. But I think it always worked. And I think uh, this... Um, hints towards something that is really interesting and a lot of people are losing nowadays and a lot of people let's say uh, listen to the idea that everything is driven from the top down and i want to say i want to ask answer them with a question if everything works from the top down and uh, the people are literally powerless civil society is literally powerless why is the first step of aspiring tyrants to control the, the press. Why do they want to control the press? Mm -hmm. Why do they want to silence dialogue? And I'm saying this because it's a very important point to, to get across because now people are completely approaching the more absolutist ideals, both left and right. They're approaching more absolutist ideas and they say, okay, the people are stupid, the people are powerless. Sometimes we, we are stupid to varying degrees. That, that's true. But that doesn't mean that there is zero power from the bottom up. Well, also, the reason that the, the right in particular recognises that deplatforming is an important issue, uh, implicit in that is that the notion that free speech is important and that disseminating information does work to combat bad ideas. Yeah. Um, because if you truly believed that, you know, information is, dissemination isn't that important, where well, you wouldn't be annoyed at deplatforming. And it's a very frustrating phenomenon. Yeah. And it's frustrating even though it's not happened to myself, right? And so the notion that people are, are sort of having a fair go, a, a debate in society, yeah. and then one side can just shut it down. Well, that, that impedes that notion of fair play, if you will. It's, it's breaking the rules. Is, as I see it. This very English way of seeing it, I think. This is uh, actually a message of uh, some people saying that 
just because the whole of society isn't the way I like it, it should be forced to become so. And that's how we get entirely antisocial people governing societies. And no wonder they turn society into a living hell. Yeah, well, it's kind of a lack of foresight on some of the rights part that they can identify that people are getting very frustrated by having um, left-wing intersectional ideology forced down their throat. And they're saying even normal people are noticing it. Yeah. And yet, if the shoe was on the other foot and they're in power, all of a sudden it would be okay. It's a very rose-tinted way of looking at the world, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that the problem with this view, um, the sort of crux of the problem here, is that it always presumes that the, the reaction, if you will, is going to remain in power indefinitely and that there's not yeah. going to be a change in power. But throughout all of human history, one of the guarantees that you get about the state of, of power, authority, and uh, that whole thing is that change is somewhat inevitable. It might be positive, it might be negative. I don't think it's linear, that's for sure. It's not just endless progress because we can see that that's not the case. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that when people imagine the future, they imagine it in an idealistic way because it's so far from the realm of possibility because there aren't any practical avenues for a, a sort of a right-wing vict cultural victory yet. Let me say another mistaken presumption is that change can be fast, mm -hmm. which is very contradictory, especially for the conservative side, because conservatives believe that, uh, for the most part, change is something that ha can happen gradually, and if it doesn't happen gradually, it's a bad thing, usually. Yeah, and I think yeah. in some ways, people are more traditionalists than they yeah. are conservatives. In, I think it's a more accurate yeah. word, although people use the term conservative, particularly, you know, they talk about the Republican Party in America, for example, they might use the term conservative, but actually, you know, the sort of Trump social views, there's, there's more traditionalism there. It's sort of uh, talking about, it's, what's it called, the paleo-conservatives, where it's about family and religion and, and things like that. Those are more traditionalist values than conservative necessarily. Yeah. Um, although there's obviously overlap. And, yeah. you know, you can't really have the opinions that we have about politics yeah. in, say, Britain and call yourself a conservative because there's nothing left to conserve. I'm, uh, I'm planning, a, staging a discussion on this. Mm -hmm. It's a very broad topic and I think we should definitely keep it or for another method. I won't spoil any more then. But uh, I, I wanted to come to build upon what you said before, that uh, the attempt to silence the opposition is generating resentment. And I say I, I want to say that, first of all, this is bad in itself. It, uh, it's, it's the wrong thing to do. It has bad consequences. It is wrong on so many levels. But one of the things that we usually don't talk about and uh, when I say we, I, I think, uh, you know, in broader terms, not necessarily us too, is that in trying to silence people who have some ideas and in trying to force them, progressivist, uh, you know, BS, there is, the op there is also resentment to the entirety of what comes from the other side. Let me just say one thing. So, for instance, I, I'm... I was uh, listening to some people lately telling me that they had a toxic masculinity course in their business. 
and it was unbelievably, you know, obviously oppressive. They resented every minute of it. It ended up having the exact opposite effect. Okay, they don't want to hear about anything. That's what they found with uh, unconscious bias training. It actually made people more racist. But sorry, do you yeah. Yes, but, but that is the issue because people link the message and the messenger and the way that the, the message is being communicated. So if the way that the message is being communicated is functions as a sort of bridge between the, the speaker and the, the audience, then a bridge that generates resentment is something that you are predisposed to see as a negative. There's actually, oh, sorry. I was just going to bring something up very quickly, and that is of the psychology of this sort of backfire effect, as it's called in, in the literature. And part of the reason it happened in the unconscious bias training is quite funny, that they talked about lots of racial stereotypes, and therefore the racial stereotypes actually became easier to recall in the minds of the people who had undergone this training. And so it made it easier to recall racial stereotypes yeah. than it had been before, even though the intention was to make them bad and, mm -hmm. and see them as bad. And I think that this can also be flipped on its head and you say, okay, well, our government's gonna stamp out degeneracy yeah. and, and we're gonna do so um, by making people know the consequences of their degenerate actions and make them take seminars. It's kind of flipping it on its head. It's like, yes, this is what you get for sleeping around. And although obviously I don't approve of that, the method is the thing of uh, that is at fault here, not necessarily the aim of making people more moral. That's good. But um, the, the thing that would happen here is they would say, well, there are all, all of these problems going on in society. Um, these are bad. Here are the reasons why. But because of human psychology, all that will happen is that the people you're trying to get to you know, agree with you, are just going to more readily recall all of the depraved things that they can do um, yeah. because you put them in their mind. And That's how it works. Sorry. Yeah. So what I wanted to say about this is that a lot of the times the way the progressivist message is being communicated, and I'm saying the progressivist message because it's fairly homogenous mm. nowadays, is generating resentment in itself because it disrespects the audience. If you sit people down as if they are toddlers, you know, grown-up individuals, and you talk to them as if they're toddlers, and you are not only talking to them as if they're toddlers, but you're also blackmailing them, saying that you are bad and I'm here to correct you. And you frequently have, you know, a person with crazy hair, not particularly well-dressed, just having lots of badges and stuff telling you how you're not progressive enough. No, I'm, I'm not talking about you. I haven't <laughs> hair, seen I'm you. having a bad hair day, all right? I don't have any badges. But, I, I am having a bad hair life. <laughs> okay, but, but... You're doing all right? Yeah, but uh, what I wanted to say is that what I think is particularly bad is that when we stop believing in free, in free speech, we lose something really important. The idea of degrees of truth. Yes. Why do I say that? Because you can definitely say that if you are a member of a society that respects your perspective, not necessarily in terms of agreement, but respects you, you as a person and your ability to voice your perspective, then you sort of see this and in return you say that, okay, I may not have a hundred percent of the truth. Ha engaging in dialogue is a means of improving my position.
and maybe the other person knows something, I know something, let's all work together and see what's the be best point of view. What I really dislike about this, and one of the outcomes that, uh, one of the very negative consequences of um, identity politics uh, messaging and the, the forceful way it is communicated is that in, it, in all the things that they're saying about you know, all these groups, there may be a small percentage of truth in some cases, and that percentage may be lost because of the bad messaging. Because for instance, let me just say, and I, I, maybe this is gonna sound weird, but for instance, I definitely see the point in some people saying that the way that the traditional family has been functioning has some defects. I'm not saying that the traditional family shouldn't exist. I'm a big believer in it. I love my family. I want to have a family. I want to have kids. But I, I'm ju I just want to say that a lot of the times there are things that go wrong and uh, from both parents. And let me just give you one example. A lot of the times people use their role in the family and say that it is a sacred role and they think that because it is a sacred role, they are owed obedience and love, but they don't have to do anything for that, mm. where in fact it's the exact opposite. For instance, someone says, let me just say the, the role of the father. If someone says, okay, I'm a father and the role of the father is sacred, and because it's a sacred role and I'm the father, you need to do anything I say. I want to say that this is profoundly mistaken because it is precisely because the role of the father is sacred, as the role of the mother is, as, as far as I'm concerned. That means that it is more demanding from the father and the mother. It doesn't mean that, okay, you birth someone and then you can do anything. You can just disappear into the night. Mm -hmm. It's not how it works. No, I very much agree. And I think actually um, that view is kind of gross, really. Like yeah. you, you've got to, there's a give and take in, in a sort of relationship, isn't there, whereby you've got to offer something to the other person, they've got to offer something to you. And that makes it sound very transactional, and that's not what I mean. But, it, it you know, you've got to bring your own virtues um, to the table. And that's ultimately what's optimal for raising children, as far as I understand. You know, mm. I've only got an academic, you know, developmental psychology background. I haven't actually raised kids, although I have encountered them before, funnily enough. You know, they're not unheard of. <laughs> I always get this. People with, with children talk to me like uh, children are like an alien race. And just like, I was a child once. I've encountered children before. My family members have children. I've also, you know, studied the literature. I can also empathize. You know, there are all these things that are on my side here to understand yeah. it. But well, that's I, a I good think it's way, one of those things. A that, good way of uh, bypassing criticism. <laughs> or and off. saying that you don't, your perspective has 0% of the truth. I know, but it's also funny to do that yeah. to people as well, isn't it? And yeah. I don't think it's mean-spirited. Yeah. But um, to, to kind of return to the, the overarching point here, disseminating information does seem to work, which is why deplatforming is frustrating and also why some people who have been deplatformed have actually faded into a certain amount of obscurity. Um, and I think that there are some cases where there have been attempts to deplatform and it hasn't worked which suggests that it's not an inevitability, yeah. which, you know, is common sense, really. And that it's motivated by the notion that you can't compete on an even platform. 
which is an acknowledgement that the idea might actually outcompete it. And, you know, I'm not afraid of, you know, if we lived in a different world where people were a bit more free-minded and understanding, going on a panel and donate, um, debating like a Nazi and a communist. And then there's me in the middle for some reason. I don't know what debate that would be, but um, I'm not so afraid of their ideas that I would be unwilling to debate them, right? And they, and they constantly want to control the press. Yes. And they do say that everything is from the top down. Which is not true. Yeah. And uh, I mean, their actions suggest otherwise. I think actually what would help society here is um, something that the schooling system has been very bad at. And it is sort of having an enthusiasm for putting your... Um, sort of rhetorical intellectual abilities to the test because a lot of the education system sort of inculcates people into being receptacles of knowledge and not really testing that knowledge except in a sort of environment where they're writing down the answers for a piece of paper at the end which I think is an incredibly narrow view of what um, education should be for but what I see debate And part of the reason I enjoy debate and, you know, it, it gives you a sort of vigor of life, doesn't it? And I, I know you're sort of similarly minded, is that it's a test of your knowledge, isn't it? It's a test of how well you can articulate what you believe. And the it's a sort of impartial test in a way, because quite often, you know, the debate is there, there are people there if you're having a debate of ideas. Although I do like a debate when it's just you and a friend and you know, you're doing it on equal terms to try and figure out. It's, it's still a good test of how to articulate yourself. And I want to see more of the enthusiasm I have and you have towards this in the general population. It's not a disagreement. It's an opportunity to test your ideas. Yeah. Reframe it. And it's also, not a debate. It's a, it's a discussion to, to, to reach to an overarching truth. And also part of growth. Yes. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.